Well, good morning, church. Super grateful to be with you, and I see a number of new people joining us. Uh, if, if I haven't met you, I'm sure I haven't just yet. My name is Nick, and I serve as one of the pastors here at Grace Church, Monterey Bay. And there's two ways for you to get connected to our church. Yes, you can go onto our church website. All the inform information is available there, but there's also connection cards there in front of, the, in front of you in the pew. And there's also a QR code that you can scan with your phone on our bulletins. We would love to know why you're coming and if you would love to join us as a church. Well, I have the amazing privilege, of course, church, to walk us through Scripture this morning. So if you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 14. John chapter 14, after Tim's prayer this morning of the leadership having a high view of God in Scripture, I have quite the responsibility now. <laughs> Just one or two short verses for us that we're going to cover, church. If you look there in John chapter 14... Verses 25 and 26. Jesus said, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Let's pray. Lord, we ask our gracious, good, heavenly Father, we ask that you would show us Christ. That the words that we look at today have interpreted to us, contemplate and meditate on all in all, you would show us your Son, Jesus Christ. As believers, as blood-bought sinners, he is all that we need. He is all that we have. And yes, it is well with our souls. I pray, Lord, in this short time that we have, that Christ would be magnified in our hearts our minds, our lives, that we would walk out of here truly changed and transformed more as we walk out of here today. For your glory, for our good, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. The Protestant Reformation is rightly regarded as the greatest revival in the last 1,000 years of church history. It's an event in history that had lasting impact for the last 500 years. Names like Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Knox, John Huss, William Tyndale, all those names are still widely known today. 
Through their writings and their sermons, these courageous men left an enduring legacy for generations of believers to follow. But the true power behind the Reformation didn't flow from any one man or group of men. To be sure, the Reformers took bold stands and offered themselves as sacrifices for the cause of the true gospel. One writer said that the sweeping triumph of 16th century revival cannot ultimately be credited to either incredible acts of valor or their brilliant works of scholarship. No, the Reformation can only be explained by something far more profound, a force infinitely more potent than anything mere mortals can produce on their own. Like any true revival, the Reformation was the inevitable and explosive consequence of the Word of God crashing like a massive tidal wave against the thin barricades of man-made tradition and hypocritical religion, close quote. It was the common people of Europe that gained access to the scriptures for the very first time in their own language that the Spirit of God used himself to convert souls. The first and primary principle that came out of the Reformation was sola scriptura, scripture alone. That it was... That is what was put on the hearts of the reformers to bring about an explosion to the darknesses of the Catholic Church. It was the spirit-empowered word of God used by God himself that did it all. One historian speaking of the time of Reformation said this, Quote, the story of such change is told through the lives of those who participated in it. And at the center was the Bible. A plaque in St. Peter's Cathedral in Geneva describes the reformer John Calvin as a servant of the word of God. Martin Luther said it himself. He said, all I have done is put forth, preach, and write the word of God and apart from this, I have done nothing. It is the word of God that has done great things. I have done nothing. The word has done and achieved everything. Well, for the reformers and for us today, church, sola scriptura means that the Bible is the only trusted divinely revealed word of God, and it is what the believer needs as the only true authority for sound doctrine and righteous living. And what I want us to look at briefly this morning is the role of the Holy Spirit bringing and giving us, the church, an accurate account 
of the glorious person and work of Jesus Christ. It's my goal, church, in the short time that we have, that we would walk out of here today with a greater appreciation, a greater devotion, a greater trust, a greater worship to God and the trustworthiness of his word. Amen. And I think we see that here in that short verse that I just read to you a minute ago in John's gospel. We are coming now to the latter half of John chapter 14. And I think the best way that we can understand this particular verse that I just read to you is to understand it in its context, of course. So let me kind of set the stage of what's going on in John chapter 14. We are there in the upper room with the 11 disciples. You know very well that Jesus has just washed their feet in John chapter 13. He has also unmasked the betrayer known as Judas. Judas leaves and the remaining 11 are there with Jesus. They are perplexed, they are confused, and they are worried. Their Lord's ministry, they're being told, was coming to a close, yet their ministry was just about to begin. If you look there in John chapter 13 and verse 33... Jesus says, little children, yet a little while I am with you, you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now also I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Because of Jesus' words of his departure, they are troubled, no doubt. Therefore, Jesus seeks to begin comforting them, giving them promise after promise after promise to show them all that they would be supplied with upon his departure. If you look there in John chapter 14 and verse 1, Jesus commands them and says, let not your hearts be troubled. And you can say that everything following that verse in verse 1 is every reason why they had or they shouldn't have been troubled. But there's more. John chapter 14 and verse 3, Jesus says, If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Look at chapter 14 and verse 12. Truly, truly, Jesus says, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Look at chapter 14 and verse 15. If you love me, Jesus says, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him. And he dwells with you, and he will be in you. Verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Look down at verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. 
And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Verse 23, Jesus answered the disciples and said, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. How much more comfort can you really get? And you notice this isn't just, it is spoken primarily to the disciples. But you notice the words, whoever has my commandments, whoever keeps my word, if anyone keeps my word, he it is who loves me. This is for believers. This is for anybody whosoever can read the words of John's gospel, come to faith in him, and love Jesus Christ. And if you remember last time, I know it was a little while ago, but if you read through John chapter 14, there's nothing being asked of the disciples. No requirements, no covenants are being made, no agreements. This is all what Jesus is going to do for his disciples and for his church. And you'll notice, who are all of these benefits for? It's describing a person. Jesus is saying that these promises are being given to a certain person. It's the one who keeps my word. And who is it that keeps my word? It's the one who loves me. We don't keep his word in order to be loved by him. We love him and therefore we keep his word. And I would say that the greatest of all the promises that we see mixed in here in John chapter 14 was the giving of the Holy Spirit. If you look there at John chapter 14 and verse 16, Jesus introduces this other helper. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. It is so important that we understand how Jesus introduces this other helper. We saw last time, very briefly, that there are two Greek words for the word another. You remember one of those Greek words in the Greek language is heteros, heteros, which means a different kind. For example, this wrench doesn't fit, give me another one. That's heteros. The second Greek term is alos, A-L-L-O-S which means also another, but it's another of the same kind. I enjoyed that sandwich. Give me another one. And don't change anything else in the sandwich. That's the term alos. And that's exactly what Jesus uses to describe this helper here. Jesus is saying that I am going to send you one of exactly the same essence as me. I'm sending you one just like myself, one who has the same mission as me, one who has the same goals as me, one who has the same attributes of deity as me, one who has the same love for you. And you'll notice that Jesus doesn't describe the spirit as a force or a ghost or a power. What does he describe him as? As a person. 
He says, he dwells with you and he will be in you. It's a pronoun. He's talking of a person. In Luke chapter 11 and verse 13, Jesus told his disciples that the Father would give them the Holy Spirit if they asked. But here, the disciples are in such confusion, such fear of what's going on, that they don't know what to ask. They don't know what they need from Jesus. But Jesus here intercedes for them. It's a good picture of how our prayers work. We come to God and we think we know what we want, or we may not know what we want, but he's already answering them for us. It's reminiscent of Isaiah 65, 24. The Lord says, before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. Christ is acting here as our great high priest. He goes before us on our behalf. We don't know what to pray. We don't know what to ask. But the Father The Son, the Spirit already know what we need. You don't have to go over to John 17 to see that Jesus Christ intercedes for his bride. He's been doing it for the culmination and the entirety of his ministry. He has been interceding for his disciples. Now, in beginning in verse 25, Jesus continues to explain the role of this other helper, which is going to come. And so with all these promises that we've been seeing in John chapter 14, we're just going to look at one. Look there again, John chapter 14 and verse 25. These things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. It is so important for us to understand what Jesus means by what he's saying there. The Holy Spirit comes in the name of Christ. What what does that mean? Well, if you look over at John chapter 14 and verse 14, Jesus promised them and says, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. When we pray in Jesus' name, which we all do, you hear it from the pulpit all the time, we pray in Jesus' name. And it's not something that we just tack on to the end of our prayers in some frivolous way that makes God obligated to answer us. When we pray in the name of Christ, it means that we are making a request to him that are consistent with his will and the purposes of his kingdom. It is to align our prayers with the Father's supreme goal of glorifying the Son. All that is consistent with his character, all that is consistent with his purpose, all that is consistent with his person is to pray in the name of Christ. If you recall Acts chapter 9, when you hear Acts chapter 9, you think of conversion of Saul. One of the things in Acts chapter 9, it's not the only thing. The Lord said to Ananias in a vision, 
go and find this man, Saul of Tarsus. Ananias objects and says, Lord, I have heard about this man, how much evil he has done. And he has authority to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias in a vision, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. The apostle Paul was there bearing, bringing, carrying the name of Christ to Gentiles, to kings, and to the people of Israel. Jesus converts Saul to Paul, and Paul begins to preach, teach, reveal, write, and explain for the rest of his life, explaining the person and work of Jesus Christ. He carried his name to everybody that he was commanded to. 1 Corinthians 2.2, Jesus said, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's a summary statement of the mission of the Apostle Paul. He carried the name of Christ. But when someone comes in the name of someone else, there's no greater example of that that when Christ had come in the name of the Father. Jesus said over and over again, I have come to do the will of him who sent me. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. This is the will of him who sent me. John 5, 19, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. John 8, 29, and he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to my father. Christ came in the name of the Father. That's why in John chapter 14 and verse 8, you don't have to turn there, but you remember Philip said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? If you've seen me, what? You've seen the Father. How can Jesus say that? Because he perfectly represented the Father. He came in the name of the Father, and he perfectly represented the Father to all the people so easily because he himself is one with the Father. And that is now how it is with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit now comes in the name of Jesus Christ because he's one with him. He is no less of God than Christ or the Father. He is one with Christ. 
So the Spirit now comes, sent by the Father to stand in the place of Christ. Look at John chapter 15 and verse 26. But when the Helper comes, Jesus says, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. Look over at John chapter 16 and verse 13. When the Spirit of truth comes... He will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Verse 14, he will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The Holy Spirit comes and desires what Christ desires. He comes and loves what Christ loves. He comes and does what Christ does. He will bring glory to Christ and not to himself. Kevin DeYoung described the Spirit's role in this way. He says, exulting in Christ is evidence of the Spirit's work. The focus of the church is not on the dove, but on the cross. And that's the way the Spirit would have it. As J.I. Packer puts it, the Spirit's message to us is never, look at me, listen to me, come to me, get to know me. But it is always, look at him, see his glory, listen to him, and hear his word, go to him and have life. Get to know him and taste his gift of joy and peace. The glorious priority, the glorious mission, the glorious goal of the Holy Spirit coming in the way that Jesus is describing him is to point people to the Lord Jesus Christ. The Spirit's work is always centered on the Savior. And listen, any ministry or any movement that the Spirit himself empowers will have the same priority and clarity. Most of you know that I work here in the Monterey County area as an electrical contractor, and we work on a lot of high-end custom homes, those giant mansions you see there on 17-mile drive. We do quite a bit of those. I work with architects, designers, interior designers, exterior designers, people that get flown in from all over the world to have a meeting with me for a few hours on one custom home. And there's always the same goal from these individuals that I have meetings with. They're always trying to accomplish a perfect amount of light on certain objects in the homeowner's house. Paintings, sculptures, stonework, steps, architecture, plants, 
cars, artwork, you name it, shrines. Yes, it's terrible. And they all want the same thing. They all want the perfect amount of light on this expensive piece. But what they don't want is they don't want to know where the light is coming from. It's a hard job. I show them the light. This is what it looks like. Like, no, that's, that's ugly. I don't want to see that. Well, what about this one? Nope, don't want to see that. And I go on and on and on until I, firm, until I find the perfect sleek light that lights up whatever the object is. So it's the perfect amount of light. So that when you come up to this beautiful painting or artwork, it lights it up perfectly. And you look around and you have no clue where that light is coming from. It's the picture of the Spirit's role with Christ. He desires to shine the perfect amount of brightness and color on the beautiful person and work of Jesus Christ. And he steps aside so that Christ may be magnified and glorified. I was reading in a commentary who was kind of not given an illustration, but he said that Christ, that the Holy Spirit is somewhat of like a floodlight to Christ. And he didn't give any illustration, but I was like, I know that one. I can, I can make an illustration out of that one. I know floodlights. <laughs> Pastor Chuck Swindoll said this. He said, mark it down. The Spirit glorifies Christ. He said, I'll go one step further. If the Holy Spirit himself is being emphasized and magnified, he isn't in it. Christ is the one who is glorified when the Spirit is at work. He does his work behind the scenes, never in the limelight. Pastor Dan Phillips said this, show me a person obsessed with the Holy Spirit and his gifts, real or imagined, and I will show you a person not filled with the Holy Spirit. Show me a person focused on the person and work of Jesus Christ, never tiring of learning about him, thinking about him, boasting of him, speaking about him, for him, and to him, thrilled and entranced with his perfections and beauty, finding ways to exalt and serve him, tirelessly exploring ways to spend and be spent for him, growing in character to be more and more like him, and I will show you a person who is filled with the Holy Spirit." That is the test of our ministry, both individually and corporately. And we can ask the question, does our church, our ministry here, exalt Christ? You just read a little while ago our mission statement. We exist to glorify God. How do we do that? By magnifying the Lord Jesus Christ ministering to his church, multiplying his disciples.
I'd say we're in good standing. And that's not a boastful statement. That is just an affirmation that we are in line with the scriptures and that we can visibly see that the spirit of God, third person of the Trinity, is working in us. And even individually, you we... I didn't plan this. I was already going to be preaching this, and it landed on our article number five on the Holy Spirit. So it was good. But even individually, the Holy Spirit not only directs our attention to the Lord Jesus Christ, he also, as you saw a minute ago, conforms us into his image. That is his goal for you individually. The Spirit's central focus his unfailing activity, his unfailing mission is to conform believers into his image. And he does that in many ways. And how does he do that? He continually shines the light on the beauty of the glory of Jesus Christ. And by that fact alone, we are compelled to be more and more like him. So when the Spirit comes, Jesus says, he comes in Christ's name. And lastly, he will come also to be the disciples' teacher. Look there at the last half of verse 26. He will come and he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Up to this point, Jesus was their teacher. He had been revealing truth to the disciples, correcting all of the misconceptions of the coming Messiah, correcting their understanding of the Old Testament, which was skewed. Three and a half years of sermons, of prayers, of instruction, to the disciples and to others. Wisdom, parables, prophecies, rebukes, words of life, words of clarity, explanations of the Godhead, commandments. He spoke of anger, retaliation, divorce, lust, fasting, treasures in heaven, judging others, heaven, hell, bearing fruit, wolves, what defiles a person, traditions, the truth about the law, the exposing of Pharisees and Sadducees, paying taxers, taxes to Caesar, not a popular one, his, con con his conversation with the devil, what it meant to follow him, the sign of Jonah, repentance, lost sheep, the lost coin, the prodigal son, the kingdom of God, children, Passover, his supper, humility, love, compassion, his true identity, the great I am's, all the foolish things that the disciples said, their failures, their successes, the words he spoke to the Father on behalf of the disciples and us, the words he spoke at Gethsemane, the words he spoke on the cross, the promise of his resurrection, the promises of, of his ascension, to name just a few. All very important words that our lives actually depend on. 
And he spoke these words in the midst of two, uh, of many people publicly over 2,000 years ago. I wonder if anybody around the time that he was speaking these words understood the real significance of his words and said, somebody start writing these things down. There was no stenographer present. Do you know what a stenographer is? What is it? Yeah, I said it. It's the lady in the courtroom. The lady in the quorum who's sitting down, I didn't know what her job was until maybe years ago, and she really does write every single word down in the courtroom from start to finish. It's impressive. It's called a, she is called a stenographer. I guess there could be a man, but every time I've seen it, it's been a woman. A stenographer. There was no stenographer present. There was no Alexa around to listen to the words of Jesus and to record everything can't trust Alexa anyways. I don't know what your Alexa does, but mine is old and damaged or something because she doesn't hear a word I say, and I have to repeat myself over and over again, and sometimes she just starts talking out of nowhere. (laughs) Can't trust her. There's a problem here. Not only... That, but his disciples, his closest friends, who were the group of people who heard the most of his words, saw the most of his miracles, they didn't even understand what he was saying. Mark chapter 9 and verse 32, Jesus tells the 12 of his death and resurrection, but it says this, they did not understand his saying and were afraid to ask him. John 2.22, Jesus said to the Jews, destroy this temple, and in three days I will rebuild it. He was speaking of the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, then his disciples remembered that he had said this. John 12.16, during the triumphal entry, and the words Jesus spoke during that time, and the people were praising him and hailing him, His disciples did not understand these things. And Jesus says, you cannot bear them even now. Not only that, in John chapter 21 and verse 25, John says, now there are also many other things that Jesus did. John writes this towards the end of his gospel when he's trying to prove who Christ is, that he is the true son of God. And he says, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. John 20 and verse 30, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not even written in the gospel of John. Now, can you imagine these disciples trying, giving the most amount of effort that they can without any supernatural help, putting together a record of Jesus' words and miracles? Of all that they saw, of all that they heard, 
Which of Jesus' words and miracles would they choose to be given and put down into our scriptures? Which ones would they leave out? There's a problem here. The disciples like us also were very weak, at times faithless, fallible, minds subject to the fall. They were troubled. They were filled with grief. And some of the most important things that happened to Jesus in the presence of the disciples, they were filled with grief. They were traumatized during those times. And most people in traumatic situations forget what happened. And not only that, they were subject to the fall. Because of our fallenness, we as a church who are indwelt by the Spirit of God, we see things differently. You can have two believers indwelt by the Spirit of God looking at the same thing in Scripture but not seeing the same thing. It's then up to someone's interpretation. So here's the question. Are these the men we are trusting to give us a complete, historical, accurate account of the person and work of Jesus Christ? Answer, yes. Because right here in verse 26, our Lord promises that the Spirit would bring back to their memories all that they needed to remember and write down and all that they would have either forgotten or didn't understand. The Spirit of God would bring to their minds the whole saving truth and revelation of Jesus Christ for his church and not lacking anything whatsoever. And there you have very simply the doctrine of divine inspiration that the Holy Spirit divinely influenced the human authors to produce God's infallible and inerrant word. Go ahead and look at 2 Peter chapter 1. It's the one passage I'm going to have you turn to that I want you to see. Second Peter chapter 1, Peter writes, For no prophecy of Scripture was ever produced by the will of man. And here it is. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, or as they were born along by the Holy Spirit. Spirit. That verb there, carried or born, it's the same verb that is used in Acts chapter 27 when Paul is shipwrecked. And Luke describes in Acts 27 in vivid detail that they lowered the mainsail on the boat to allow the ship to be driven along by the wind. That's the, the picture of the word that's being used there. 
The entire motion of the ship has nothing to do with the people in the boat, but it has everything to do with the wind carrying along the boat where the wind is pushing it. That's the verb used there in 2 Peter chapter 1. Men spoke. Men wrote. And you can even see their personalities being brought as they're writing. They were carried along to produce nothing short of God's infallible and inerrant word. What he wanted them to say perfectly. So that every time scripture speaks, God speaks. And I I love how you you can see that men wrote the Bible. It wasn't written by some robot. It was all kinds of different men who wrote with different writing styles with different diverse and social backgrounds. You you think of Matthew, and he's a tax collector, writing with a strong Jewish flavor. You think of Luke, who was a physician, who wrote as a brilliant scholar and an historian who gave the most amount of attention to Jesus' healing ministry. Why? He's a doctor, and he can't heal people like Christ, and he's amazed by that. You think of John who wrote with utter simplicity, who wrote his gospel up to 50 years after all that he had witnessed with Christ. 50 years after, and he was able, by the Spirit of God, to write down everything in his gospels and his epistles. You think of Peter, an uneducated fisherman, I am always encouraged when Peter is exalted. He's an uneducated fisherman. I'm an uneducated worker. I'm just like Peter. He was bold. He was brazen, a son of thunder. But when you see him write, he writes with such humility later on after Jesus left. Just a few weeks ago, I briefly went through a hermeneutics course. You say, Nick, what's hermeneutics? It's the science of interpretation. It is how we interpret the Bible, the methods that we use to interpret and understand God's word. And there's something that I walked away from that short course that is just so simple and really just yet profound. God created language. I learned a lot more, I promise, but (laughs) he created language. God created us to be creatures who communicate with him and with each other for those very purposes. And he created languages for him ultimately to communicate things to us. If you remember in Exodus chapter 4, when the Lord is telling Moses of all the destruction that he would do to the Egyptians and especially Pharaoh, and that Moses is the one that's going to tell Pharaoh all these things. Moses objects and says to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and of tongue. And the Lord said to him, Moses, who made man's mouth. 
Who makes him mute or deaf or seen or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will be with your mouth and teach you what to speak. End of discussion. It's just that simple. God has never had a problem causing his servants to speak his words with perfection for Israel or for his church. And so what you have mixed in with the doctrine of divine inspiration is a doctrine of providence. Passages like Philippians 2, verse 13, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Romans 8, 28, and we know that all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. He works every single thing in the believer's life ultimately for your good. That is a doctrine of providence. And it's mixed in with the doctrine of divine inspiration. When I come to understand the character of God, who he is, what he has done, his plan to redeem a people born into sin, to cause a people who are dead in sin to become alive and to create worshipers of himself, I have no problem believing and affirming that he can communicate truth to his creation and to creatures made in his image. I have never had that much of a problem with the doctrine of divine inspiration. We need him to speak, and we need him to speak with utter clarity and not for sinful humanity to mess it up, because we have and we will. We need a perfect, inerrant, infallible word, and for men not to mess with it. Our lives have depended on it. If you're joining us today, and maybe God's word honestly doesn't mean very much to you, you can actually do without it. We as a church, as a people of God, believe that he has spoken. And he has spoken very clearly of who he is and what he has done. If there's confusion in the world of whether or not God has clearly spoken, it's that they're denying him and they're suppressing that truth that they know in unrighteousness so they can keep on living the way that they want to live. But we as a church believe that he has revealed himself to be a very loving creator who has revealed himself to be good, holy, just, gracious, merciful, compassion, and good. And my dear friend, if you're here and you're not a believer, everything that you have and enjoy has been given to you by that creator. But because of his righteousness, holiness, and goodness, he demands perfect obedience before his presence. But there's bad news. The bad news is that we all stand condemned before him because we have all willfully, we have all willfully turned to our own evil ways. We've denied his existence. We've had no desire to acknowledge him. 
We were filled with all kinds of unrighteousness, murder, deceit, anger, greed, lust, and impurity. All of us have sinned against him. And friend, his word declares that the due penalty for our offenses is deserving of death, which is eternity in a place called hell. But this glorious book has the greatest news in all of human history, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He came and he lived the perfect life that was required of you and of me, and he lived that perfect life. He lived in that obedience all the way in his earthly ministry. And he went with that perfect righteousness all the way to the cross. And he actually died in the place of sinners like you and just like me. He was the just one who died for the unjust, taking upon himself the curse that should have been laid upon every one of us. And this Savior actually died. He was buried in the grave, all to rise in three days. You say, how did he rise? Because he wasn't just a man, he was actually God in the flesh. And he rose on the third day, proving all that he ever said and all that he ever did. And he went back to his father, where he now rules and reigns on his rightful throne as judge of all the earth right now as we speak. And friend, this whole entire book, written over a span of 1,500 years, written by 39 different authors. They all, without contradiction, all of them point to that glorious one, Jesus Christ, who deserves nothing short of your complete love, worship, and complete allegiance. Dear friend, if you're joining us, that was a very, very brief and simple explanation of the gospel. It's all right here if you would read the words contained in it. If you would turn away from your sin and embrace Jesus Christ, read his book that he's given to you. He is everything. And for us, church, I want to end by reading Ephesians chapter 3. You can turn there if you want. I'm turning there. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 14. This is Paul's prayer to the Ephesians, and this is my prayer for us today. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 14. Paul says, For this reason I bow my knees. This is his prayer. I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So that, so that Christ has been given to your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith.
that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge and that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. In order for that to be accomplished in us, church, and you read those words as a believer and you say, yes and amen, I want that to happen in my life. And that is the work of the Holy Spirit to shine brightly the glory of Jesus Christ in our hearts. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for just answering our prayer a minute ago, for showing us Christ. Holy Spirit, thank you for shining that light on Christ. We ask that you would continue to sanctify us in all the ways in which you do. Teach us from your word. Help us to meditate upon and remember all that we have ever read and will continue to read. Christ, thank you for living that life, dying that death, rising and ascending in the work that you did for your bride, your church, whom you have given your life to. We stand in awe, we stand amazed of the love that we have from Father, Son, and Spirit. Don't allow us to walk away with any kind of apathy in our hearts, but with a greater appreciation, devotion to you and the trustworthiness of your revealed will and word. I pray, Lord, that we would be able to see the miracle of the Bible given to us from generation to generation to be able to understand its contents. May we be a people of the word. Not that we worship the word, but we worship the God of the word. And may you be glorified in all of our endeavors. And of course, we know for all of our good. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.